Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you at times worry about the future of the church? It can be challenging. It can be a challenging world to be a Christian, and it's also a challenging world in which to raise covenant children. One of the main challenges for the church throughout time is remaining faithful to God throughout the generations. Each one generation might be faithful that, as we all know, no generation lasts forever. Each generation of Christians is called to teach the next generation. Each generation is called to persevere in the faith. Each generation must learn to build the church. Well, that's a challenge, to say the least. And the Old Testament people of Israel show us this challenge all too well. And nowhere is this perhaps clearer than in the book of Judges. Our text this morning is from Judges 2. And this text, it shows us the constant danger of apostasy, of falling away from the Lord. This danger was so real for Israel that it seemed that each new generation of Israelites almost committed apostasy and had to be brought back. And we might wonder, how can the church survive if this danger is still so real today? But for this, as always, we must fix our eyes on our God, and we must fix our eyes on His Word, our God works to bring his people back to himself. He is faithful. He did that for Israel. He's still at work in his church today. So I preach to you God's word under the following theme. The Lord works to break Israel's cycle of apostasy. We'll look at, first of all, Israel's apostasy, and second of all, the Lord's saving work. Now, as you read through all the Old Testament, you can see certain themes emerging. One is that God compares his relationship to Israel like that of a husband and a wife. As we see from the Bible, that relationship got off to a rocky start. Just think of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. It was like infidelity on the wedding day. However, the Lord graciously forgave his bride. And now they were going into the land of Canaan, together, and the Lord would dwell among his people. And one would hope that it would be covenant bliss from here on in. But sadly, it was not the case. No sooner are they in the land and Israel's spiritual adultery gets worse. The text says that Israel forsook the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. The accursed gods of the Canaanites. And the text literally says that they fornicated after other gods. And that is a fitting description. See, not only were they committing spiritual adultery against the Lord, but the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth had often involved sexual immorality. You see, Baal and Ashtaroth, they were fertility gods. And according to Canaanite religion, the fertility of the land supposedly depended on the sexual relationship between these two gods. 
However, in order to provoke them to action, the men of the land would visit the temple prostitutes, hoping that Baal and Ashtoreth would follow their lead. And Israel fell into this deadly trap of idol worship. At times we might scoff at ancient people bowing down to idols like Baal. But when you study it and see what it's all about, you take away the idols of wood and stone and left with the sexual immorality of it all. It's not that far removed from internet pornography. As we look at this story seen in front of us, we should ask, what went wrong for Israel? Why did they fall into Baal worship so quickly and so often? We can point to a number of things here. In the first place, Israel failed to drive out the Canaanites from the land. See, there's two introductions to the book of Judges. The first introduction from chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 5, it describes Israel's military failure. The second introduction, our text, describes Israel's spiritual failure. And make no mistake, these two things are related. God commanded His people to drive out the Canaanites, to show them no mercy, and to devote certain cities to destruction. And that certainly sounds like a difficult command, and it, and it is. It was. But it was extremely important you see, the, the conquest was not some bloodthirsty escapade. It was about pure justice. This idolatrous Canaanite culture had to be destroyed. And if it was not, it would lead to Israel's own downfall. That's how it sometimes goes with God's commandments. Obedience might be difficult at times. You know, we might scratch our heads and wonder, you know, God wants me to do this, or He doesn't want me to do that. That's hard. But we must understand, obedience to God's commandments always results in life. Difficult obedience might be difficult, but it never leads to regret. The end is always good. And you believe that? Do you trust that God's commandments are good? No, is there somewhere, anywhere in your life where you were thinking of disobeying God because it, it just seems easier? I don't go that route. It's not going to work out in the end. It didn't work out for Israel. So that was the first reason Israel fell into idolatry. The second thing is found in verses 6 to 10 of our text. See, after his speech, Joshua dismissed the people. Each one went up to take possession of his inheritance. And the people of Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the elders who outlived him. But eventually they all died and were buried. And then verse 10 gives us these ominous words. There arose another generation after them 
who did not know the Lord. They did not know the great work that He had done for Israel. And this was a tragedy. This was the very people of God. And they did not know the Lord. And when people do not know the Lord, they will inevitably serve idols. Right? There's no such thing as an irreligious person in this world. Everyone, including you and me, everyone in this city, even self-proclaimed atheists, they are serving something or someone. And a new Israelite generation did not know the Lord, and so they chased after idols. What happened to bring about this tragedy? Well, we could focus on a number of things. We could think of the parents of this generation. They, for the most part, were faithful believers, as it appears from Scriptures. How was the faith not passed down to their children? Well, the text is not specific, but it gives us some clues. Chapter 1, verse 1, describes the military battles of the tribes after the death of Joshua. That was good. It's what God commanded them to do. It was part of uh, the advancement of God's kingdom on the earth. But were the parents so busy with this kingdom work that they neglected to teach their children? Perhaps. Something to think about. There's more. The beginning of our text says that when Joshua dismissed the people, each one went to take possession of his inheritance. And what a joyous time that must have been after all that wandering in the desert, after all these battles they had already fought. Now they could finally enjoy the land. It's understandable. But did they try to enjoy the land too soon? Were their hearts so set on enjoying their newfound riches that they neglected to teach their children? Perhaps. Something to think about. Whatever the case, it seems that these parents did not practice what God commanded in Deuteronomy 6, which we heard after the law. These words that I command you today shall be on your hearts shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. No, we can't say for sure, but maybe the parents thought everything would be automatic. We're the covenant people of God. We're in the land. We don't need to bother teaching our children. So the parents bear responsibility here, but they're not the only ones. We should also think of the Levites. The Levites were appointed by God to teach the people. They had to teach them who the Lord was, how to serve them, what God required of them. But when you read the last five chapters of the book of Judges, you can see the Levites failed. And without good teaching, God's people will go astray. So the Levites bear responsibility, but there's more. It's also the responsibility of the next generation itself. 
Yes, they may have received subpar teaching, but it does not put them off the hook. The text says they did not know the Lord. Did this mean they knew nothing about God? Of course they did. They probably knew many things about the Lord. Take Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, in the book of Samuel. That was during the time of the judges, too. They were praise-serving at the temple. They knew plenty about the Lord. But 1 Samuel 2 says the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They treated God's offering with contempt. They slept with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. There was no fear of God before their eyes. And this generation of Israelites in our text, they probably knew many things about God, but there was no fire in their faith. They did not embrace the Lord as their God. They may have heard all these stories about the ten plagues and the Red Sea and the defeat of Jericho, but it, none of that seemed to impress them at all. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they're just busy living their own lives in Canaan, didn't even bother thinking about the Lord and their relationship with Him. And in their eyes, maybe serving Baal seemed like more fun. Maybe they thought keeping the Sabbath day was a drag. And Baal and Ashtaroth, they appealed to the evil desires of their heart, and so they followed these desires without even thinking twice. These are some of the reasons for Israel's failure in Judges 2, and these things can still hinder the church today. Parents, teach your children the faith. Read the Bible in your homes. Pray with them and for them. Bring them to church. Be willing to answer their questions about their Bible. Please understand, you don't need to be a a theologian to do this, but you need to be genuine. If you're only going through the motions of the Christian faith, it's going to rub off on your children. Remember what Deuteronomy 6 also, about talking about the commandments of God throughout the day, When you go out, when you're at home, God is saying, let talking about your faith become as natural as breathing. We are Christians. We talk about our faith in our day-to-day lives. The failure of the Levites is a good reminder. The Levites were set apart by God to teach the people. We could think of the office bearers today, too. Ministers and elders and deacons all have a job to teach God's people from God's Word. And when this work is done faithfully, God's people will be built up in the faith. That's why it's also important that we keep a sharp eye and ear on the preaching of God's Word. It must be faithful. If it's not faithful, it will lead to unfaithfulness in the people of God. Ministers of the Word must be held to account as well. Finally, there's the youth. This message is for you. Have you embraced the Lord as your God? Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is there any fire in your faith? No, I suspect most of the 
children and teenagers here have been taught the faith at home. I suspect most of you have attended or are attending a Christian school, and that most of the teenagers here have attended catechism. And understand, in all of those things, living water is put before you. The living water that is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. But know also this, your parents can set this living water before you, but they cannot make you drink. Drink in this living water. Embrace Christ as your Savior. You know, perhaps you say in your heart, you'll start thinking about faith and serving God later in life once you grow up. But how many covenant children tried that approach and ended up with a hardened heart? And when the time came to making decisions about God and faith, they chose the way of sin. You see, the world gives another message to teenagers. The world expects teenagers to experiment with sin and to sleep around. But how foolish. May it never be that way for us. You see, God has given you a wonderful time in your teenage years within your parents' home. He's given you time to grow into a spiritually mature person. And some of my catechism students will have heard me say this before. If you're, say, 13 years old, can be younger too, but 13 years old and up here, here's what I really encourage you to do. Get a light. Put it beside your bed. Read a small portion of the Bible and say a prayer before you go to sleep. Grow in your own relationship with the Lord. Perhaps get some good Christian books to read to help you grow in the faith. Of course, that doesn't mean that by the time you're 20 years old, God expects you to know all the answers or to never struggle in faith or in serving the Lord. I can guarantee you that your parents don't know all the answers and even the eldest among us have their struggles in faith. And that's okay. The main thing is, what is the trajectory of your life? Is it towards God? Or is it away from Him? Well, please understand by this message, I'm not trying to berate you in any way or discourage you. But I want you to understand this. If you choose to serve idols now, it's only going to hurt you later in life. It will. Look at Israel in our text. This was such a crucial time in their history. They were entering into the land. God told them to get rid of the idolatry of the land. And if Israel gets things right at this point, so much would go well for them in, in the coming years. But Israel did not get rid of the idols of the land, and it caused them so much pain. And as for you growing up, you need to learn to fight against idolatry now. You need to guard your heart now. 
and set your heart on the right things. If you set your heart on serving sin in your teenage years, it's only going to cause you pain later in life. I can guarantee you that there would be some older people here who would be saying, yes, that's so true. Listen to this message. It will bring you life. And it pains me to think that some of you might not listen. Again, I, I do not mean to berate you, but in the Lord God there is life. In following Jesus Christ there is life. In submitting to God's Word there is life. There's life now, life in the future, life for all eternity. Brings us to our second point. Now, the Lord in His justice could have wiped His hands clean of His people, but in His grace He did not. He had mercy on them. And yet God's mercy to Israel did not come without a painful reality. Israel rejected God, their shield, and so God withheld His protection from them. Right? It makes sense. If Israel wanted to serve the nation's gods, they would have the nations as their kings. He sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies. Right? God's judgments always fit the sin. But God's judgment towards Israel was, not, was, was also His fatherly discipline to them in His love to bring them back. That's the way it is with God's discipline it's often painful, but it's the medicine we need to cure us from idolatry. Hebrews 12 tells us not to take God's discipline lightly, right? Don't just shug it off. The Spirit also says, do not lose heart. God disciplines those whom He loves. <clears throat> now, Israel cried out in distress because of their enemies, and God, in His fatherly mercy, took pity on them. He raised up judges who saved them. Our text gives an overview of the entire book of the book of Judges. It's a cycle, a cycle of apostasy on Israel's part, but then God's faithfulness on His part, raising up judges to bring His people back. And these judges, they were interesting characters to say the least. You know, the Bible or the, the book of Judges contains some of the best-known stories in the Bible. Who can forget about Ehud and King Eglon, or Jephthah's tragic vow, not to mention Samson fighting all those Philistines. And these judges show God's power to save His people through weak and flawed leaders. Sure makes for some exciting reading. But as we will see, there are also some big problems. There was a problem with the judges themselves. The judges seemed to do well at first, but the problem was they were cut from the same cloth as Israel. Slowly but surely, the judges got worse too. Gideon fell into idolatry. Jephthah entered into a civil war with Ephraim. And of course, there are Samson's multiple issues. And so, if Israel needs true saving, it will need to be through the hands of a better Savior. And the other problem with the judges was that they only brought temporary relief. Right? The judges were like a spiritual band-aid 
for spiritually dead people. It never lasted. The last verse of our text says, Whenever the judge died, the Israelites turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And what is the issue here? It's the issue of the human heart. God is revealing to us the human heart. Why was Israel so prone to idolatry? It's not because they only had bad examples. Idolatry was in their very nature. Baal was not just an idol outside of themselves. Baal was in their very blood. Idolatry spewed out of their hearts like a muddy fountain. And it's the same sinful heart that we have as well. Who of us can say we've never fallen into idolatry? Ephesians 5 tells us that greed is idolatry. What three-year-old has never been captured by greed? That's in all of us. What was moving into the promised land about God was going to live in a wonderful relationship with His people, fulfill His promises to Abraham. Israel was supposed to be blessed and all the nations blessed in them. But our text shows us that none of that's going to happen through these people. Something will need to give. Something will need to change, and God did make a big change. God would bring about a new covenant, a new covenant in Christ, a covenant that would bring about lasting fellowship between God and His people, a covenant where God's people would know the Lord, a covenant where God's law would be written not just on tablets of stone but on our hearts, a covenant in which God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. God brought it about through Christ. In one way, Christ was similar to these judges. He was a Savior that God raised up from the people of Israel. However, Christ was still cut from a different cloth than these judges. He was born without our fallen hearts. He came to do God's will. And through His perfect sacrifice, He brought about that new covenant. And through that sacrifice, God remembers our sins no more. They are forgiven, put away. Israel, the bride of the Lord, gave their lives and their hearts to idols. But Christ gave His life to to cleanse His bride. Israel abandoned the Lord, and so they deserve to be forsaken by God, and it's the same with us. But Christ was forsaken on the cross to take that just punishment away, to secure fellowship with our God. In His grace, God has paid for all of our idolatry through the cross of Christ. And Christ has secured the life-giving Holy Spirit. He works in our hearts to to keep us from the apostasy Israel committed. 
He teaches us to say no to idolatry. He engraves the law of God deeper and deeper upon our hearts. The work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit ensures that the church will not fail. God's promises to Abraham will not fail. That's comforting to know. But even though God's church will not ultimately fail, it is true that individual churches can fail. And individual persons can go astray. So we must be on guard. As the author of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, heard about Christ. See, Christ is the last and greatest judge that God raised up for his people. And if we walk away from Christ... There will be no other Savior God raises up after Him, like He did time and again in the book of Judges. Christ is it. And so we must put our faith in Him. See, when Christ returns, He will do what Israel failed to do. He will cleanse this world from idolatry. But for those who embrace Him, who take refuge in His saving work, there will be salvation and eternal life. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 52, stanzas 1, 3, and 4.